0: James chapter 4, and we've come to that that section that I've titled, The Source of All Conflict. The Source of All Conflict. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture, and it tells us why there's conflict, both in the world and maybe even our own relationships. Let me read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We expose it from the Word of God every week, we're focused on the Word of God because it's Pastor David prayed, we, we want to change, and I don't know if so much this week will involve change as it is, is more an explanation of why there's conflict and where conflict comes from. Certainly when we get down to verses 4 through 10, we'll begin to look at some of the instruction that James gives us practically there in our fight against worldliness. But here in four, one through three, it says there, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There it is, the reading of the Word of God. How, how do we understand court conflict? Where, where do these conflicts come from, whether it is at large in our society or it's in our own home, in our own workplace? Maybe you've heard about the man who was stranded on a, on a deserted island in the Pacific for years. And one day, a a boat came into his view, and the man, you can imagine being out there for years all by himself, frantically waved and got the captain's attention, the skipper's attention, and the boat saw him and landed on the beach, and the captain of that particular boat got out to greet the stranded man, and they talked just a bit, and then he noticed that this man had three huts that he had built right there on the beach. And uh, the captain asked him, what are those three huts you've built? And the man replied, he said, the first hut is my house. Well, the captain said, well, what's that next hut? He said, I built that for my church. And then the captain said, what about that third hut? And the man answered and he said, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) I mean, evidently he had problems and he was the only one there on the island. That's good. I mean, but why do these things happen? I mean, it's true. Sadly, in some cases, people switch churches, and maybe there's reasons for that. But conflict, how does it come to us? Now, as you look here and you got your bulletin notes, we've come to Roman numeral number 7, and James has been testing us all the way through this book that it's tested our faith in relation to wisdom. In other words, if you really got a living, vibrant, true active faith, then it's going to be demonstrated in your personal relationships through wisdom. And on this section here, we're looking at four insights that enable you to discern God's wisdom that is needed for a living faith. And remember, we began that and looked at first the concept of wisdom. Look at verse 13, back in chapter 3. He's in the same argument. That argument runs from 3.13 down through 4.3. Some people, and evidently the one who arbitrarily added the chapter here in chapter 4.1, it seems to me would have been better placed at 4.4, 4, that begins a new section where he says, you adulterous people. In other words, as he's talking about wisdom, he begins that argument, does James in 3.13, and I believe he runs it all the way down through 4.3. But in 3.13, he said, who is wise and who is understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. And we looked at that first, that biblical concept of wisdom, and we said that wisdom is really the skill of living. It's not so much theory, if you will, not so much information in the mind. It's the skill of putting truth into your life and in this context, in your relationships. What's interesting there on the concept of wisdom, remember in verse 13, wisdom really is displayed just like true faith is displayed. He says in verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, you're demonstrating your wisdom, that skill of living in verse 13, your good conduct and his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then secondly, that second insight we looked at was the characterization and the confusion of worldly wisdom because he's comparing and contrasting. And remember he said in 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast. And be false to the truth. This wisdom, he says, that does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every evil practice. And so he talked there about a worldly wisdom. He said it's characterized by jealousy. It's characterized, in verse 14, by selfish ambition. He said it doesn't come from God. In verse 15, he said it's earthly, thirdly. He said it's unspiritual and it's demonic. And where you have that kind of jealousy ambition, he says in your relationships, in verse 16, there's going to be disorder and every vile practice. And so he characterized, did he not, and showed the confusion of worldly wisdom, which led to the third concept the characterization and the consequence of heavenly wisdom. He said, if you've got the wisdom that comes from above, verse 17, he says it's marked by this, purity. Then it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's the characterization of heavenly wisdom. Your motive is pure. Your your spirit is peaceable, your peacemaking is the thought, your tone, rather than being moved by ambition and jealousy, you're gentle, Forth there, you're open to reason, the thought is, you're reasonable, in other words, you listen, you're full of mercy, full of good fruits, you're impartial and so forth, you're sincere without hypocrisy. And he says, when you're characterized by that, look at verse 18. He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There is the consequence of heavenly wisdom it's peace. Now, we desire that, but we fall so short sometimes, do we not? I mean, what our desire is in our personal relationships and here in the context of wisdom sometimes doesn't live itself out. And so he puts the characteristics together and he says, here's what heavenly wisdom looks like. Here's what worldly wisdom looks like. Worldly wisdom leads to confusion. It leads to disorder. It leads to every evil practice, he said. But the heavenly wisdom here, the consequence, it's sown in peace by those who make peace. And then the question would come as you transition into four one: is why do we fall short sometimes? Why are our relationships maybe not marked by that kind of heavenly wisdom? And I bring you to this fourth and final principle in this insight in 4, 1 through 3, is the conflict of wisdom, the conflict of wisdom. And he's going to kind of take us right down to the source. I mean, you would agree. I mean, we belong to the same family, the family of God. We trust the same Savior, The same Holy Spirit indwells us, and yet sometimes we bicker and fight and are at each other. And I I really think that in the Spirit of God here, He takes us from taming the tongue in 3, 1 through 12 to this issue of wisdom, because often it shows itself in how we speak to one another. Now, as we walk through this in the conflict of wisdom, I want to show you the source of wisdom, which we touched on last week. The outcome, excuse me, the source of our conflict, then the outcome there on your notes of our conflict, and then the frustration of our conflict. It's just the teaching of the word of God. And it's interesting how James does it. You might not remember this, but he gives us two rhetorical questions that exposes the source of our conflict. Then he says there's two results that expose the outcome of our conflict. And then he gives two reasons um, that expose the frustration of our conflict. But let's walk into this, and he'll answer to, for us why this takes place. Now, there's some commentators, as you walk into 4, 1 through 3, they build it back into the section that we'll look at next week in 4, 4, where he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And they look at this entire section, 4, 1 through 10, as a place for the unbeliever. And they would say, therefore, what James is doing is he's exposing people who are in the church who don't have the real faith. These people in 4, 1 through 10 are worldly and so forth, and they really show themselves that their faith is not true, it's not living, and it's not active. I suppose there can be truth there. But I think it's even more than that. I think he's talking to us. I think he's talking to you. I think he's talking to you individually. I think he's talking to me. I think he's talking to your family. He's talking about relationships. It's hard for me to think that James is writing under the spirit of God and then somehow he just jumps to a people who are completely outside of the church, either inside it and living sinful or completely outside. I think he's coming right after us. And when he says, look at one," what causes and... What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I don't think he's talking about necessarily the unbelieving world. I think he's talking to us. And he's asking that rhetorical question here under the source of our conflict. What causes that? So look at as you're taking notes. He first diagnoses the external condition. Okay, He identifies the symptoms, and I'll call it that, The symptoms of the problem. You say, well, what are the symptoms of the conflict? Well, look at four one. He says, quarrels, what causes quarrels, and what causes fights. He mentions those two words. Now, I just call them symptoms because that's not really the main issue. But he's looking at it externally and he says, I see these or I hear of these or I know of these quarrels in your body. In your flock or I hear of these fights and he really describes some graphic words these words as I mentioned and I won't go into it look here the message on the on the web. He says you got quarrels and fights and both words describe verbal disputes in relationships both of those words actually spoke of literal skirmishes and wars and battles. James is obviously using them in this context and he says, though there's battles and wars and terrorists and all those things, you've got these things in your house, if you will. And he uses kind of a violent and descriptive language and no wonder he warned us to control the uncontrollable tongue. That's the external condition. But watch this. He answers the first question with a second question. Look at it in one. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Question one, he'll answer it. Question two, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There it is. He discovers, secondly in your notes here, the internal cause. The first one is just the symptom. It's quarrels and fights. We we understand that. He's going to take us a little deeper and with clinical precision, he says the cause or the source of your conflict, look at it again in four one, is your passions are at war within you. If you're holding an NIV this morning, it says your desire. Okay, they're just trying to grapple what that word passions is. I think in the NASB, it's used the word pleasures. So again, you can see that sometimes the Translators are trying to focus in. Wh- what is this issue here? In the ESV, it says your passions. I I, I like that wo- word, passions. I mentioned last week is simply the Greek word. Do you remember what it was? Hednay is the word. Obviously, we get our English word hedonism from it. Okay. Sometimes that word is translated lust, but I think it's passions, I like that very well, or pleasure. You say, well, what is that? What's the source here? Listen, he says the source of all your conflicts is not somebody else. The source with people is your passion. It's your hedne. You say, well, what is that? Hedne or passions, is a desire to live for what? Self. Yourself, your person wants immediate gratification. In fact, one author said hedonism is the uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim that promises sensual satisfaction and enjoyment. That's what James says. Though so the quarrels and fights, that's an external condition. Here is, if you will, the internal cause. Now, it's amazing when you look at that term, your passions, you see it there, are at war within you. Those passions are characteristic in the scripture of people who don't know Christ. I mean, I would say that. You remember in in 1 Timothy where he says men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He's talking about the unsaved world. He said they're going to be lovers of pleasure passion, or here, hedene, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It, it says in First Thessalonians of that word that you're not to live in a lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. In fact, the word is used in other places like in, uh, you know, the well, the one well and the sower of the seed in Luke 18, 8, 14, where it talks about that. The, the, the worries of the world and the desires for other things. And, and he says there in 8.14, the pleasures of life, the passions of life, enter in and choke the word. So there's people who say that you see he's really addressing people who aren't saved. But listen, <laughs> those passions are in you, are they not? Those passions are in me. You could be redeemed and still have hedone in your own heart. In fact, I, I kind of laugh when I get to this passage because when I was raising my son Johnny, and Johnny would ever give me a problem, you can text him on this in the service right now, I would say, just Johnny, that's your hedone in the way. That's your hedone. Dad, I know it's my hedone. So when he got a little older and he thought I got grumpy, he would say, Dad, that's hedine. you know. And I, I, I said, you're right. But listen, these passions are still in you. So here what James is saying, pull it back together, is all conflict has its origin in one's passions. Let me be clear. It's not the environment. It's not your hereditary. You can't blame it on someone else. What brings strife and conflict and warring is these passions. That's what James says. Historians have noted this as well. Philo, in his history, says that the Ten Commandments culminate you know, his thought in the forbidding of covetousness, or he used the word desire. He said, did Philo for desire is the worst of all passions of the soul. He says, is it not because of the passion that relations are broken, that great countries are desolated by domestic dissensions? He said in land and sea filled with ever new disasters by naval battles, battles and land campaigns. Philo went on to say that for the wars have all flowed, he said, from one source, desire, either for money or glory or pleasure, he said, over these things, the human race goes mad. So true. Look at Russia right now. And then their battle with that, that country next to them. They want control. What is it? Passions. You want something. You want the control. You want the country. You want the right for it. You want the glory of it, whatever it may be. Cicero, the historian, said, quote, it is insatiable desires which overturn not only individual men, he said, but whole families, and which even bring down the states from desires. There springs hatred, discords, and wars. And Cicero said, desire is at the root of all evils, which ruin life and divide men. So that's the problem. He deals with the external condition, but he gets here to the internal aspect of it. And he says, it's your desires. You say, Scott, what is it a little bit more? It's a passion to rule and please self. That's it. So listen, Grace Church, every Outward, belligerent action is an eruption, a symptom of an inward, selfish desire, okay? But then he goes on. Look, thirdly, I'm just rocking down the notes with you here. Thirdly here, he describes the internal conflict. So you've got an internal cause, passion, but there's an internal conflict. Look at the text again in four one. He's, and this is just good. That's why we bring our Bibles. It's hard for me sometimes when I, when I drive in and I drive by places and nobody carries the scripture, but we're going to carry him, right? We're going to carry him because look what it says. It's intriguing. He says, these, your passions, there's the problem, are at war. What does he say? Within you. Amazing. These passions. Okay, you, you get it there. It's an internal cause, but the internal conflict, it's within you. Now, in the Greek language there in four one, it says these passions are at war. It says with your members is the word, not members in the church, but members of your body, if you will. In fact, that same word, we've seen it before. Look over at chapter 3, verse 6. Remember when he was talking there? About the tongue, about the idea of it being in you or in your members, he said, "The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness." And I'm in three six. The tongue is set among our what? Our members, not members in the church, but our members of our body, our components of our body. So listen, he's he's just. I'm just. We're just explaining the Bible here. Your conflict per se. It's not with people, although it may be by symptom, but it's not with your spouse. The real culprit here is your unredeemed flesh that still lives within you. You say, well, Scott, I'm a new creature. Yeah, you are, okay? You are a new creature. You say, I'm no longer under the power or the reign of sin. Yes, you're no longer under the domination of sin, but the Bible never says you don't have sin in you. You still have unredeemed flesh. In fact, James spells it out. You got problems with people in conflict. And here's why. You got passions, and those passions, look at it again, are at war. They're setting up a a war within you. You're like a walking civil battle, if you will. Civil war, okay? And you've got them in you, and they're in your Members, okay? In fact, just look over to the right a few pages in First Peter. Remember in First Peter 2, he, and, and this is so clear, and he's obviously talking to us, not an unbeliever. He says, in First Peter 2:11 he says, "Beloved, great text. He says, "I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain." this is good, from the passions of your flesh." Which wage war against your what? Soul. You're a war. And so these passions are in you. They're 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 part of you. They they're gonna bring conflict to you. And if you're not careful, if you're marked by earthly, worldly wisdom, it's going to produce confusion and disorder and every evil thing. But where your life is marked by heavenly wisdom, it's going to produce peace. But he's just telling us, here's the source of it. It's your passions. I mean, the believer is a walking civil war sometimes of competing desires. Tasker, the commentator, said the soul, he says, has been invaded by an alien army which always campaigns against the believer's soul. Okay? So listen, married couple, you just put that into your relationship. Two people transformed by God's grace who want to love Christ find out when they get married that these passions are still in them. And and really, a couple is going to have great unity when they each respectively die to self and live for another. But these passions are in you. In fact, these desires are on active service. An enemy, beloved, has invaded us, and the enemy is us, and it fights against us, and it's our passions. Calvin put it this way. We don't talk enough about this, but Calvin said, so true, there is within every heart a smoldering cinder that is ready to ignite. That's what it is. In fact, my wife and I talked with somebody this week, who, you know, they, they got in the flesh, if you will, not here in our church. And, and one thing leads to another and one thing topples on another and words are spoken and words need to be retracted and there needs to be... Fr- well, you say, well, what happens? Well, I mean, we can see it. I can tell you what happens. Either the man gets selfish or the woman gets selfish. You say, well, Scott, where does that stuff come from? Inside. So well what is that kind of stuff? Passion nay, lustful desire. You say, Well, Scott, where do those come from? They come from even our fallenness. So even though you're in a new in Christ, a new creation, you still have this. Now you say, Well, Scott, I thought the old man has died. Romans 6, 6. Yes, the old man has died. But let me be clear, okay? What died in Romans 6, 6 was the reigning power of sin, not sin itself, right? I just think often we just say we died, and it did die, the old man. But you died to the reigning power, not sin itself. I mean, to affirm that we have died to the reigning power of sin does not negate the fact that we battle with sin, right? It's simply to say that we're no longer in bondage to sin, Sin no longer reigns over us. We're no longer controlled by sin, but sin still indwells in your mortal body. And we will fight it all the way until what? We die, until glorification. So you got justification, sanctification, glorification. Before you came to Christ, you're a slave of sin. He justifies you. He frees you from the reigning power of sin justification leads into sanctification. He's making you more like Christ. But listen, until you're glorified, you will be fighting sin all your life. So listen, if you want to know, well, gosh, I don't know, pastor, how we got into conflict. Let James tell you. It's right here. It's your passions. It's your hidden Like I used to tell Johnny, they're wanting control. And so the source isn't some external condition. Fight and quarrel, it shows that way. But the real source is your passions. They're at war within you. In fact, look back in Romans just for a second. Remember in Romans, look look back. I'll just I'll take you there. Doesn't Paul speak of this very issue when he tells us and he exhorts us in Romans chapter 6. Look there just for a moment. Romans 6, where he tells us in verse 12. Let not sin, he says, reign. In other words, don't let it control you. Don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You don't have to do that if you're a believer. And do not present verse thirteen. The members, your members. He's back on that thought. To sin as instruments of for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought. Uh, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So he exhorted us there, did he, to not let sin reign and rule in our body that we should obey its lust. Look over at Romans chapter seven. You certainly remember this. When Paul wanting to live the Christian life, said, but I see, and I'm in 723, I see in my members, there's that word again, another law waging, descriptive language, war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And there's some people who believe that Paul can't be saved here, and I think Paul is saved here. I think he's in that context. He's in that battle. You remember the battle? Look at Romans seven eighteen, where he said in Romans 17, 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So listen, we've got to walk in the Spirit, and these passions are at war within you. In fact, we look just for a moment at the book of Galatians, Look over at Galatians, you say, Well, Scott, how do I, how do I exactly know when when I'm living in that way? Well, if you I suppose you could take your life by the fruit of the spirit, right? Or by the deeds of the flesh. But you remember he, Paul said to the church at Galatians 517, he sent there, very interesting, and he's talking to us as believers, for the desires of the flesh, 517, are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, he says you are not under the law. But here's how you know if you're in the flesh in the midst of your argument. Look at verse 19. He said the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. I call those the big three. But but look, he keeps going idolatry. Sorcery. Now watch this for our context. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. All those are deeds of the flesh. No wonder there's conflict. Because when these things get in our way, then we're not going to be able to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas Manton, the great Puritan Pastor and preacher said it this way. He says, we carry an enemy in our hearts. He said, the sinful nature and the spirit like the twins in Rebecca's womb battle and struggle. He said, indeed, worldly desires stir and rage. He actually said more in a godly heart than in a wicked one. Listen, I think he's right. When you're unsaved, you're not in this kind of battle. But when you become a Christian, you become aware and the Holy Spirit's in your life all of a sudden, if you're either in the flesh or, or you're in the spirit. So he asked two rhetorical questions. Here's the source of all of our conflict. It's your passions that are within you. But he goes on, look at secondly, at the outcome of our conflict. The outcome of our conflict. He says two results follow. Look back now in James 4. He said two results will follow if that's the case. He says in four two, you desire and do not have... He said, so you murder, okay? Stop there just for a second. He said, you desire. Now, he, he switches the word there. The word for desire is not the word day, passions in verse 1. You've seen the word before, desire. He says, you desire. And, and, and desires aren't necessarily wrong. This is just simply the word that we often use for lust, some lust, if you will, and we explain that in James 1, are good. But this is obviously a strong desire, a craving. And in the context, it's for reaching after sin. Now, look at it again in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have. You say, well, what did they? What were they desiring in, in, as James writes to them? Well, you can't really be clear. But if you look down at verse 3, it doesn't say... He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. He says there to spend it on your passions. So evidently they were desiring something that was not holy, something that was not right. But, but look what happens when you get into this kind of conflict. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not what have. Your lust, if you will, that's the word for epithumio, does not bring the satisfaction that you desired and you lusted for. In other words, the lust, the desire here for satisfaction remains unquenched. You know the principle. The more you have, the more you want, and the more you possess, the more you desire. And, and here, biblically, okay, James is saying self gratification is an elusive goal, right? You are always seeking, but you're never finding. You're always desiring, if you will, but you're never fulfilled. And he says, this is what happens. Here's the source. Here's the outcome. And you desire and you do not receive. And so look what happens in 4.2. And you tell me what you think. It says there, so you, what? Murder. Now, I'm asking you Bible scholars out there, is that literal Is that, you know, is that literal or is it figurative, right? I mean, what is James saying here? And he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, some obviously translate this figuratively, okay? In other words, he's not really talking about real murder, He's speaking hypothetically here. He's speaking in hyperbole. He's saying you want something, but you don't get it, so you're going to murder, and it's going to take the form of, if you will, an attitude. In fact, some translation says, so you are bent on murder. doesn't mean you've murdered. You're just bent on it. Or another translation says you are ready to kill. doesn't mean you've killed. You're just ready to do it. Now, obviously, There's support for that view biblically. We just went through that some months back in 1 John. In 1 John 3.13, there John the Apostle said that everyone who hates his brother is a what? Murder. So there he's, he's obviously talking figuratively. If you hate with an attitude, your brother, you've murdered your brother. And there the reference, and even in this one context, is towards an attitude, not an action. Jesus would speak of that in Matthew five wouldn't he? That if you look on your brother and call him a fool, you know, and so forth, you've murdered in your heart. It would be like you saying, I wish you were what? dead. That's what James is talking about. You're fighting, you're quarreling. The external system, you know symptoms is the fight in the corner, but the internal cause is your passions and the internal conflict is you're at war within your soul so you desire, you lust for something you cannot obtain. So you're bent if you will on murder. you wish someone else was dead. I, I mean, there's truth to that, right? I mean, a word, a a, a strong word can penetrate someone like a knife, right? A thought in my mind, in your mind, can be as deadly as a gun. A criticism to someone else could become as deadly as poison. However, though, I wouldn't want to put it past anybody in a heated moment to do something rash. And I believe that James' statement can be literal murder. So you have biblical evidence? Yeah, way too much, but enough to say that Cain murdered his brother, what? Abel, and he murdered him literally. And John said in 1 John 3.11, the message is that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Why? For what reason did he slay him John the apostle asked in 3:11 because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous he was envious of his brother envious of his righteous deed whatever that might have been and so Cain rose up and physically literally killed his brother Abel in fact i read this morning about Ahab and his wicked wife Satan i mean Jezebel remember that Remember, Ahab was really just kind of just bummed one day. He just said, man, I just, I I like our our king's palace, but I'd really like that vineyard right next to me. You know, it produces great nectarines, I'm thinking, great plums. It's a great piece of land. Except the problem was it was owned by a man by the name of Naboth, right? And so he's all bummed and ticked and melancholy, 1 Kings 21. His wife comes in and says, "Well, that's not a problem," and so she arranges it to have a dinner for Naboth. And in she sends two wicked people that made a lie on Ahab, and they rose up on Naboth and they lied about him and rose up and stoned him. And she gave, if you will, Ahab the land that he wanted. Why? He murdered it. She, he, and she murdered Naboth for that piece of land. Happens all the time. I mean, this is what can happen. I don't. I, I, I. Maybe it's figuratively, but I think of a guy like David who's out when he should have been at battle and he's out on, the ba- on his balcony of his palace and he looks down and he sees who? Bathsheba, you know the account. He lusts after her. He wants her. Hedene, instantly, gratification, Sends for his man. They bring Bathsheba up. You know the whole account, but that's not all not only did she carry his child, but then he put Uriah to the front of the battle and what? Withdrew. David was a murderer. And the prophet exposed him and said, you are the man. Listen, I don't, I, he could be talking figuratively, but I think he could be talking literally. The Pharisees in the New Testament murdered the Savior out of envy. And what begins as a thought may turn well into an act. And Peter said in 4.15, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Barclay, I think, got it together. Listen to how he said it. He said, a man desires something. The thing dominates his thoughts. He finds himself involuntarily thinking about it in his waking hours and dreaming about it when he sleeps. It becomes, Barclay said, a ruling passion. He begins to form imaginary schemes to obtain it. And these schemes may well involve ways of eliminating those who stand in the way for long enough. All this may go on in his mind. Then one day, the the imaginings may blaze into action and he may find himself taking the terrible steps necessary to obtain the desire and then he said this that every crime in this world has come from desire which was first only a feeling in the heart but which being nourished long enough came in the end to action end of quote. that's why people murder people they want something they want it bad and listen they want it now Listen, I've preached long enough when I was a younger man in the prisons to talk face-to-face to men who would murder people in their own family to get a fix for 20 minutes. That's unbelievable. Maybe you say, okay, that's the prison. How about you? You're in your home. You want something. You desire something. You want it now and you want somebody to respond now and far from being marked by the wisdom of God that's pure and gentle and peaceable and reasonable. You become demanding and overbearing and harsh and all of a sudden you're sowing disorder and then you're blaming it on someone else. James says, hey, reel back with me. These passions are in you, okay? Okay. The first aim usually of most people is to please themselves, and it becomes a battleground, a division at every point. So the source of our conflict stems back to the frustrated desire to want more than we have, and we covet what others have. So look it. It expresses, here's the first result. He says, you desire and do not have, so you commit murder. But look at the second result. Do you see it there? He says there in verse 2, he says, you covet. It's different. The first one is you desire and do not have, so you murder. Here's the second result. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here's the second, you covet. What does it mean to covet? Zalu is the word. It just means to to covet, uh, as we would know it. If you look back, though, it's interesting. The noun form of that word, look back at 316. The noun form is for where jealousy is. And selfish ambition exists. That word for jealousy, that's the noun form of this word here for covet, okay? And you say, well, what is that, Scott? Well, to covet, here's how I would say it. To be jealous, we might even use the word envy or someone who covets, listen, is envious of what other people have. And to covet something is to steal, if you will, and fixate on what belongs to another. In fact, we read it earlier in Galatians 5.21, covet, or the word envy, is a deed of the flesh. You begin to desire for another person's station in life and you begin to covet what they have. You become jealous of what they have. This is conflict. I'm just helping you. What happens here is we we become envious or jealous or we covet what somebody else wants, and it's a scary sin. It says in Mark 15, 10, speaking of Christ, that he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Wow. Envy say what's really at stake there they handed him over because they were envious of the popularity that he had with the people which is why they crucified him because of envy you think it was a matter of truth no it's not a matter of truth they were envious is what it says in mark fifteen ten. It says in Acts 5.17 that the high priest rose up along with all all his associates and it said they were filled with jealousy. There's our word. They they got mad at the apostles preaching because of jealousy. In fact, it says in Acts 7.9 that the patriarchs, speaking of the 12 tribes and those men, became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. You said, Why'd they sell him? They're jealous of him. That's what the Bible says. You said, Well, they didn't like him. No, I'm telling you, they were jealous of him. They were jealous of his father's affection for him, jealous that his father gave him the you know, the multicolored tunic, je- jealous at how he treated that one, and it says they it this it's they became jealous of Joseph and they sold him into Egypt. In fact, in Acts 13, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God in Acts 13, 44. And it says there, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Real simple. And they begin to contradict the things spoken by Paul. It's not the fact that they didn't like the truth. I'm sure there was part of that. But they saw that the crowd was filled, and they were filled with envy and with jealousy. Listen, you want to know what's at the source of conflict? It's this, epithumia, lustful thoughts, and you can't have, so you contemplate either murder in your mind or some people act it out then you begin to covet you want what someone else has it's it's a death disease i mean shakespeare called envy the green sickness you remember that jonathan edwards said that envy is a spirit of dissatisfaction or opposition to the prosperity or happiness of other people i would hope that wouldn't happen in our flock Think about what Edwards said. It's a spirit of dissatisfaction or opposition to the prosperity or happiness of other people. Are you upset when other people become successful? When their plans turn to gold and somehow yours fizzled? Listen, there'll be conflict in your home and conflict in our church if a covetous desire gets within any of us. One commentator by the name of Richard Phillips said this. It's sad. Is it true? What do you think? He said, the longer we live, the more we see that pretty much everyone is envying everything else. He said, it's really pitiful. None of us has the circumstances we really want, and the circumstances we have always provide us with challenges. So you keep moving from one place to another place to another place. You're running from everything the Lord ever did in your life. Why? Because you want something and what you want may not be a godly desire. In fact, look back at the text in James 4, 3. It's the same thing he says there. He says you covet and cannot what obtain your desire is frustrated. It's like a mirage in the desert. And he says, because you covet and cannot obtain, look at verse 2 again. He said, so you fight and what? Coral. So conflict is the result of unfulfilled lust and envy, and it leads to conflict. And there's a final reason there, and we'll finish right here. He says, he exposes the frustration of our conflict. Okay, and he gives two reasons here on that. Look at verse 2. Very interesting. He says, you do not have because you do not what? Ask. Here's the first reason for the frustration of our conflict is prayerlessness. That's what James says. He says, rather than going to God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift, they fail to pray for the all to the all wise God. And James just says, listen, when you get in a situation like this, it's best just to pray sometimes, isn't it? It's just best to ask. He says, but as it is, you just become so agitated. And he says, you don't have because you don't ask I mean we come back you remember look back at James 1 5 remember that where he says if any of you lacks wisdom same similar context let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be what given to him you just got to ask you got to let him ask and the thought is let him ask the giving God and when you're asking you're pleading you're begging you're begging God for wisdom if you will in fact, Jesus said in John 16, 23, and 24, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing. Ask, and you will receive. But you got to ask. You, you guys know the great hymn by Scriven. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God. What? In prayer. Just pray. Pray, he says. He, 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 so, but, but look, he says there, he says, he gives a second reason, though. Look at it, and we'll finish here. He says, but you do not, he says, he says, you ask, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. There it is. You ask wrongly. The thought is you ask with a wrong motive. And what was the motive? To spend it on their hedonies. Back to our word again. To spend it on your passions. He's, and to spend there is to squander it away like the prodigal son squandering away his inheritance. Sometimes our prayers are just so selfish, are they not? And beloved, when we pray, we need to have a pray, an eye, a single eye to God to be glorified. I, I like what MacArthur said on this. He said, a child, a true child of God concerns himself not so much with his own plans, and his own desires as he does with the plan of God revealed in the person of Christ. He said, when you pray right, you're not letting God in on your plans. You should be calling God to fulfill his plan. He says it takes a transformation in the life of a believer to come to the place where instead of saying, my kingdom come, he says, thy kingdom come. And too often, MacArthur said, our prayers are filled with our own kingdom, our own plan, our own reign, our own rule, and our own causes. And so, beloved, would it be that his cause, his program, his plan should be our preoccupation so that we would pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I was reading a parable this week from an unknown author, quite strong. He said, the wedding guests have gathered in great anticipation. The ceremony to be performed today has long been awaited. The orchestra begins to play an anthem, and the choir rises in proper precision. The bridegroom and the attendants gather. One little saint, her flowered hat bobbing, leans to her companion and whispers, isn't he handsome? And the response is agreement, my yes. The handsomest. The sound of the organ raises a joyous announcement that the bride is coming. Everyone stands and strains to get a proper glimpse of the beauty. Then a horrible gasp explodes from the congregation. This is a bride like no other. In she stumbles. Something terrible has happened. One leg is twisted she lips, limps pronouncedly. The wedding garment is tattered and muddy. Great rents in her dress leave her scarcely modest. Black bruises can be seen welting her bare arms. The bride's nose is bloody and eye is swollen, yellow and purple in its discoloration. Patches of her hair look as if they've actually been pulled from her scalp. Fumbling over the keys, the organist begins begins again after his shocked pause and the attendants cast their eyes down. The congregation mourns silently. Surely the bridegroom deserved better than this. That handsome prince who has kept himself faithful to his love should find consummation with the most beautiful of women. Not this. His bride, the church, has been fighting again. I I would pray that as we walk forward that our relationships would be marked with humility and wisdom.